You're listening to the North Canton Chapel Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning, good morning. I'm so glad that you're here. I have a little bit of a morbid curiosity that I need to confess this morning. Um, tattoo failures. So I was looking at them the other day, just kind of like I got sucked into this little wormhole, and I saw one that's like on, the, on somebody's back. Like, it's right across his shoulder. It looks like a him, and it says, I'm awesome, which like, okay, strike one. But this says, I am, and then... A-W-S-O-M-E, and I'm like, ooh, not so great, you know? And there's always like the face tattoo thing. You're looking at it and you go, oh, I don't know, you know, it's a gamble. But the one that I love the most that I came across is this one. Yeah, and I was, I was a little bit like, oh, oh, that's really hard. And I hate to be snarky, but the first thing I thought when I saw it was like, well, I can name one. <laughs> like, I hate to be that way. Regret. Regret. I think a lot of us, just projecting a little bit, a lot of us have more regrets than we probably know what to do with. Maybe no regrets, but regret, I think, has a, a pretty powerful effect in the life of, of those of us who claim Christ. We look over our shoulder, and there's some things back there that we wish either never happened, never did, or wish we could erase. I think regret has a shackling effect on a lot of us, and I think we want to be free. We want to be live without fear. We want to get to a place where there's no shame, but there's just this stuff back here. We wish we could just break up with it. I don't think I'm alone in that space. And so where we're going today, just to get out there, regrets and the goodness of the gospel. This is the ninth week in our Ephesians series, and this one to me, honestly, is, is probably the most personal, and I think you'll see this as, as we get going. This is a, a text that's very near and dear to my heart because it's, it just closely parallels my story. And I just want you to, as we get into this text in a few minutes, Please do not look at this text as outside of yourself. There's a lot of power in where we're going to be. So, Paul's writing this text, where we're going to be, to the church in Ephesus. And he's encouraging them to look at regret and then move on. He wants them to be free, harder than you might think. So where we're going to go, this text breaks up into two halves. The first half it's kind of like the look in the rearview mirror. This is verses 19, or 17 through 19. Everything that's in the rearview mirror in your past. The second half, verses 20 through 24, is a look through the windshield. Everything that's in front of you. And I want to encourage you to look at this text in that way. We're going to unfold the text. I'm going to tell you a little bit of my story. And then one giant reason why it's hard to apply this text to our lives. And so let's get right to it. Ephesians chapter 4. You can turn there if you like. It'll be on the screens behind me. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Here's what Paul says. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. It's a really strong word here. That you must no longer walk 
as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, this probably caught his readers a little bit by surprise because let's remember who he's writing to here. He's writing to Christians in the city of Ephesus. These are Ephesians. These are Christians in the city of Ephesus, one of the crown jewels of Greco-Roman culture. This church was over 90% Gentile, ethnically not Jewish, probably like many of us in this room. And that's why he went through all the trouble back in chapter 3, you remember, about talking about how in Christ, Gentiles are now members of the same body, part of God's people, heirs to the promise, all that. These are Gentile believers. And so now he is saying, don't live like a Gentile anymore. That's crazy talk. This is ground zero in Ephesus for what it means to be a Gentile. Philosophy in the library, religion in the temple, civic presence in the forum, art in the streets, drama in the square. Everywhere you looked in Ephesus, Ephesus was a city intentionally designed to craft, solidify, and reinforce your Gentile identity. And here's Paul saying, that's not who you really are. Really. Not really. It's impossible for us to really get the scope of what this means. In Ephesus, don't live like the Gentiles. This is like heading to the Muni lot before a Browns game and saying, guys, let's just lose all the jerseys. You don't have to wear those anymore. That's not the place you say that. The Muni lot is like ground zero for Browns fandom, right? We're making a trip to that city up north called the Big House this year on November 25th. Trust me, I already looked. And saying scarlet and gray, blue and maize, it doesn't matter. You're like, you want to bet? It really does. Or, pushing further, because you knew I would, red state, blue state, doesn't matter anymore. You want to (laughs) bet? Sure does. (laughs) So what are you talking about, Paul? Those identity markers are super important. That's what makes us who we are. That's what clarifies who we're rooting for and what we value and what we believe in. Those are the things that signal our loyalties. And Paul's word is, not anymore. Now, am I saying you can't put a flag in in your front yard or a sign in your front yard or root for a team or come down on a side? Of course not. Unless you're a Steeler fan and then we provide counseling for you here on site. We can have that. There it is. There's both of you out there, Bill. I heard you. They will be waiting for you in the parking lot. I'm just telling you. Now, what's he saying here? Is he just going, that's not who you are anymore. You can have those things and that's great. But those identity markers that used to signal our loyalties, our affections, and our allegiances, those old flimsy things are faded and have fallen away, and in their place is something new and good and lasting and beautiful. And as a Christian, you won't think how you used to think. And you won't live how you used to live because you are not who you used to be. In first century Ephesus, the identity question was Jew or Gentile. And how you answered that determined everything. That was the signaling issue in Paul's day. And Paul's bold, wonderfully stupefying assertion is Christians occupy a third race, a third place 
a third people, and not a people of compromise who live in a place of indifference, but a people who have a completely new identity, and we're probably going to feel homeless in this world because we're actually citizens of another one. We don't think how we used to think. We don't live how we used to live because we are not who we used to be. Everything has changed. Completely new way of seeing our world and everyone in it. Now I'm going to get specific in like 30 seconds, but first, here's our problem. Most of us try to carry elements of our former lives into our Christian experience. And we try and take this square peg of a comfortable way of thinking, a comfortable way of living, and we try and jam it in this round hole, and we go, I'm sure I can make this fit. This has to fit in here. And then we wonder why we're frustrated all the time. (laughs) I'm sure I can bring this over. I'm sure I can make this fit in here. And we mess up our faith, and we get so frustrated because we're trying to jam something from the world into the things of the Lord. And Paul is saying, you can't do that. Everything is new, and you are not who you used to be. Just speaking as a pastor, and then like just also as a person, most of the Christian life is just breaking up with your former self. And I say that just as somebody who walks alongside people as they're trying to do that, but also somebody who's trying to do it himself. And this is Paul's word to start this section. Don't walk the way you used to walk. And I don't know about you, but that is really, really hard. And we'll talk about why in just a few minutes. But then Paul pushes this further. He gets detailed, and he unfolds what that assertion actually means. He invites us to actually look in the rearview mirror of our own lives, glance over our shoulder, and understand who we once were. And so Paul paints this HD view of what life before Christ looks like. Here's what he says. Verse 17 again. No longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. There's seven phrases in here that we've got to define if we're going to get a sense of this text. Seven images and ideas that Paul sees in the rearview mirror that characterize who we are breaking up with. And so we're going to define all seven of them, talk about what they mean, and then we're going to put them all together. So who did I used to be, Paul? First phrase, it's right at the end of verse 17. He says, the futility of their minds. This word futility actually means useless, purposelessness. In secular Greek, um, the word is used to describe something that is deceptively ineffectual. Like you look at it, and it looks great. But then you try to use it, and it can't do what it was supposed to do. This is a coffee cup with a hole in the bottom of it. This is a freshly waxed car with no gas in the tank. This is a brand new pen that already ran out of ink. Whatever we were designed to do, we are incapable of doing for some reason. And where is this uselessness located? Paul says it's in our minds. Now, he doesn't mean memory loss or loss of mental function. He means the things that we naturally think about. 
where our minds naturally run. What takes up space in that place in my mind that was meant for beauty? Our minds were created to muse on goodness, but sin has made me incapable of doing it. And this is the starting point for lost humanity. Our creative imagination is crippled. Then Paul expands the picture in the second phrase. He says we are darkened in their understanding. It's a really interesting word choice for Paul. He doesn't just mean that the lights are off up here. This is a spatial word. That means it's darkened because something is obscured. There's something standing in the way. Humanity is looking for moral clarity, but there's something obscuring our view. We can't see what we're supposed to do or know where we're supposed to go because there's something in the way. And so we're left scratching our heads, wondering why we keep stubbing our toes in the darkness as we just wander around. Gosh, that sounds like our world, doesn't it? But then this life apart from Jesus isn't just dark, it's also cold. The third phrase in here, alienated from the life of God. That's strong talk. That means distance. And it sounds like really harsh. Alienated from the life of God. Here's the thing. Being cut off from the life that God offers is the natural result of willful sin. And I'd put it more delicately if I could, but that's what it says. This image is reaching all the way back to the garden, right? You can hear that in there, can't you? Cut off, alienated, pushed away from the life of God. Believing that they knew better than God, Adam and Eve ate the fruit, invited sin into their lives, and immediately alienation sets in. You know how the story goes. And they find themselves scared, alone, and afraid for the first time ever. The point, sin necessarily means distance. But this phrase is more than just distance. It's also a horticultural term, like gardening, like plants and leaves and trees and stuff. Sin becomes the pruning blade that cuts me off from how God has designed me to receive life. So that left to myself, I'm just a branch over here on the burn pile. I wither and die. And weirdly, I did this to myself. And so did you. Now, why would we do that? Why would you cut yourself off from the thing that gives you life? The answer comes next. Because of the fourth phrase, ignorance that is in them. Ignorance, he says. In Greek culture, ignorance is a legal term. It's basically their version of, officer, I didn't know I was speeding. <laughs> Too bad I got to give you a ticket anyway. But I didn't know. I didn't see the sign. Hate to break it to you. If you're driving, you're supposed to know. <laughs> The spiritual corollary is, if you're human, you are somehow responsible for seeking out spiritual truth. And I know that sounds unfair. I know that sounds harsh. But here's the thing. Have you ever seen the sunset? Have you ever seen the Grand Canyon and your mouth just drops open? Have you ever seen a beautiful thing and went, ah? Those are the signs that something, someone is out there. Evidence. Not enough to save you. But it's definitely enough to waken your curiosity if you're paying attention. Paul says this in Romans chapter 1. You don't have to turn there, but you can write this down. Romans chapter 1, he says, For what could be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. How? He goes on in verse 20. For his invisible attributes, 
namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. But what did we do? Verse 21. For although they knew God, like we had this rumbling that there's something down there, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. There's that phrase again. And their foolish hearts were what? Darkened. Sounds like exactly what he's saying to the Ephesians. Spiritual ignorance is not an excuse. It's an indictment. I can't cruise through life not seeking truth because if Paul's words are to be believed here, we're always seeking truth. What's our problem is we just look for it in the wrong places over and over and over again. Well, how'd this happen, Paul? Now, Paul looks deeper inward for his answer in the fifth phrase. How did we get here? And it's right at the end of verse 18. He says, due to the hardness of heart. This is a medical term. It's called petrifaction. And it's a pretty vivid image. Here's the idea. When you break a bone and it gets reset, the place of the breaking after the healing is actually harder than the surrounding bone. Petrifaction. Here's what this means spiritually. As we go through life and the world breaks our heart again and again and again and again, anybody relate to that? You just go through life and you get banged up. That's how life works. It's just a true story. Nobody gets through life unscathed. The world breaks your heart. Without Christ, a hardness sets in that makes me progressively insensitive to spiritual healing. Petrifaction. Practically, the more you experience the brokenness of the world, and it's not hard to find, without Christ, the harder you're likely to get. It's why people without Christ get increasingly bitter as they go through life. That's what he's talking about. Petrifaction, hardness of heart. But then as if we needed further clarity, Paul gives us a sixth word, not just the hardness of the heart, they have become callous. The consequence of this perpetual hardening of my heart is that sin no longer registers a stab of pain. I can't feel anymore. And at first that sounds kind of nice because like, I don't like to feel guilty, do you? (laughs) I'd like to not feel guilty for sin. And Paul's going, no, that's not good. You are created to be tender to sin. We're created to feel that when it hurts. But to borrow a phrase from some of my favorite philosophers, Pink Floyd, I have become comfortably numb. <laughs> it's this sense of like consciousness. I don't feel a thing and I'm actually happy about it. That is not a good place to be. Moral deadness. I can't respond because I am morally numb. I can't feel. I'm dead. Put simply, not feeling the sting of sin is not good for me. I'm created to be tender, but I've become callous. And all this unfeeling callousness leads to a pretty rough place. And here's the seventh phrase we're going to key in on. Verse 19. Given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The old word there is licentiousness. Everybody say licentiousness. Doesn't it sound bad? Like it doesn't sound like a good word. (laughs) One commentator defines this as the determination to gratify self-interest at all costs with a continual lust for more. In short, I can't get enough of myself. 
I am the center of my own world and I'm good with it. Sexual self-centrality, the obsession to gratify my basest sexual desires is in view here, but there's a lot more. Here's the idea. At this point, I have moved way beyond sinning without feeling, and now I'm sinning and boasting about it. But even here, here's the truth. Still strangely unsatisfied. To my own frustration. Now let's take a few steps back from this very cluttered and very dark canvas to see what's here. What is this picture saying? These seven phrases, these verses, all these little elements, you put them together, you step back, what do we see? Here is our natural situation according to God's word. Four things that just flow right from this text. First, the hardness of heart comes first, leads to a darkness of mind, leads to a deadness of soul, leads to the recklessness of life. Look at this for a few minutes. We're going to talk about it quickly. A hardness of heart. Like, I see God's truth, but I refuse it willingly, going, "Mm -mm, I don't want that. You're not the boss of me, God. Hardness of heart. Leads to a darkness of mind. We don't know who we are or where we are. We are disoriented. Leads to a deadness of soul. We're eating pretzels to quench our thirst. (laughs) And surprisingly, we're not satisfied. Leads to a recklessness of life. I am in love with the worst parts of me. This is the scenario. And Paul's saying, that's who you were. That's who God wants you to break up with. So how should we, as saved people, assuming that that is you, interact with this text. I think there are two responses. I want to hit these quickly, and then we'll move on to what Paul wants us to see next. How should we respond to this? If this is who we used to be, two things. First, humble thankfulness and prayerful desperation. Humble thankfulness. If you get to the end of these two verses and you just go, man, I'm glad I'm not like that. If that's you, you are misreading this text And you are ripe for abusing this text because you're seeing this picture as outside of yourself. This is about you. This is about me. This is us. Remember, this is written to believers. These are people who are doing their level best to leave their old selves behind, to break up with who we used to be, get over all that, and get on to the Jesus way. And so I can't can't look at this and go, man, those people out there, they are bad. Well, that's true, but so am I, and so are you. Sounds like a Dr. Seuss rhyme. (laughs) They're bad, and that's true, and so am I, and so are you. Here's the point. We aren't given this text. Don't make that into a t-shirt or a book, please. Like, (laughs) it's not going to work. We aren't given this text to compare ourselves with them. We are given this text to compare ourselves with ourselves and give glory to God for all that he has done. Humble thankfulness because Christ is our only hope. Second response to this text. Prayerful desperation. Not only should I be humbly thankful that Jesus did this for me, I should be prayerfully desperate that he would do it for others so I don't look down my nose at anyone because I didn't do this for myself. I didn't save myself. So here's the question. How does a callous heart become soft? 
It isn't through arguments. It isn't through reasons. It isn't through blog posts. No one is arm wrestled into the kingdom. That's not how that works. Who can soften a hard heart? Great news. The scripture answers that. But first, it presents the problem. Take a look in 1 Corinthians 2.14. Just take a quick glance at this. Here's what Paul said to them. He says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is us pre-Christ. Of course all this is gobbledygook to the natural man. Of course this makes no sense. This is like lunacy. Without God's movement, they won't get it because you didn't either. The lights are off until God decides to flip them on in the blazing light of his goodness and grace. On our own, the lights never come on. That's a huge problem. But then here comes the gospel prefigured way back in Ezekiel chapter 36. Here's God's promise. This is about conversion. He says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. So we should pray. Pray that God moves in the lives of those living in darkness. If this new life is your reality, if this is true of you this morning, if you're a Christian, if you've been converted, right? Pray that he would do this for others. Prayerful desperation because our only hope is Christ. Before we move on, a quick word for those who feel overwhelmed by the vividness of this darkness in our world today. Because I watch the same news that you do. I see the same stuff and it unnerves me probably in the same way. To me, it is a very curious and comforting thing that in the deep silences of every human heart, there is this quiet and undeniable restlessness. It's nameless and strange and real. And even those who boast, there is a deep and nameless ache beneath the callous. Because beneath the rebellion, before the rebellion, under the madness, before the world was unmade by our sin, there is a yet-to-be-acknowledged memory passed down of what we had before when we walked with the Lord. And this memory always whispers. Sometimes it shouts, but it won't be quiet no matter how thick the callus is. So I take great comfort that even the dark, darkest human heart there is always hope. The barely discernible glimmer of this little fleck of light on the corner of a dark canvas called the gospel. Just the smallest brushstroke sometimes, but it is the reminder of our true and better story, resurrection. <laughs> New life from death. Beauty from ashes, because this is what our God does. All glory to him. And so having tumbled down, 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 here's where the text changes directions. Paul shifts his gaze from the rearview mirror to the windshield. And seeing the Ephesian church, here's what he says, verse 20. But that is not the way that you learned Christ. But that giant shift in Paul's thinking. Literally this reads, but not you, that learning in Christ. It's like this, whoosh. And then Paul takes this kind of like professorial tone when he says in verse 21, like assuming that you've heard about him and we're taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. We should hear this as, well, 
you do know the gospel, right? <laughs> you have heard this before, right? You remember this, right? Know what? Learned what? Remember what? And then the next two verses give us the answer. And this is such good gospel. What did we learn from Jesus? To put off your old self. There's command number one which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and then to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, so three words, three teachings of Jesus, according to Paul, to put off, to be renewed, and to put on. So first, what they mean, and then what you're supposed to do about it. First, to put off. Now, interestingly, if Paul meant to take off like a coat, okay, or to undress, he would have used a different word here, because that's not this word. The word he's talking about here is most often used to bury. Not just to take off, as in like, well, yeah, I don't want that on my back anymore. To bury. So not just to break up with your old self. Now Paul's going, no, 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 no. God wants you to bury that old self. This is the disciples dropping their nets. The woman at the well in John 4, she left her jar. This is Paul himself who left his former way of life. That's not who you are anymore. That's done. Praise God. It's over. It's gone. Life with Jesus is not a negotiation that asks, what can I keep? Life with Jesus is a radical departure that says, I am done. This is burial. That old me, gone. Second verb, you're also taught to be renewed. This is the newness that comes when I bury my former self and start following Jesus. This is the kind of renewal that I can't do on my own. This is a passive-voiced verb, which means this doesn't happen because of me. This happens to me because of Christ. That is a massive idea, to be renewed. And I'm not the one doing the renewal. Jesus is. And then the third in here, to put on your new self. That's the newness that Jesus is working in me as he works who I am out of me and then his life works in me. Simply because of what Jesus has done, I am now able to hate sin and to love what is right, which is so much different than I would still do it if I could get away with it. (laughs) This is, I love Jesus so much that I now want for me what he wants for me put off, be renewed, put on. One word for all of this, and it's an old word, but it's a good word, conversion. (laughs) Old gone, new has come. How do you know if you're converted? How do you know if you're saved? Not just when you stop doing wrong and start doing right. That's part of it. But here Paul's pushing deeper. When you stop wanting to do wrong and you start wanting to do right. You don't kill the power of sin only by talking about how terrible sin is. You kill the power of sin by talking about how amazing Jesus is, how much better he is than anything else. The way to satisfaction is not through legalistic obedience, but by overwhelming power of love for Christ. Now, that's this whole section. This is the Christian life in summary. Put off, be renewed, put on. We never, ever, ever, ever get over this. We are here as long as we are on earth. (laughs) So here's my story. I want to just take a couple minutes because this text is very near and dear to me. Um, I never really wanted to be a pastor. 
Like, I never set out to do that. I never looked at a pastor and said, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to be. That's just not my story. Um, I have an 11-year slice of my life, even though growing up in a church with wonderful parents and hearing sermons every Sunday and being part of a worship band and all this stuff, that's all in my back. There's an 11-year slice of my life, though, where by day I was this really well-behaved kid, but then under the shelter of whatever intellectual place I had in my own life, not at all living like it. An 11-year slice where just like a well-behaved, functional pagan. And I found my way to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes gets a bad rap because it's kind of depressing. It's not. For me, go figure, over-intellectual teenager, I read Ecclesiastes, and my experience was this is the first time that the Bible makes any sense to me at all. I read this, and Solomon's going, look, I tried everything, and none of it satisfies. I tried it all. I feel like he was, like, down at the bottom of a trailhead and, like, shouting back, like, don't bother. (laughs) And I'm like, oh. But that presented a problem for me because it was like, now, now I have the lock. I have the name for the problem, but I don't have the key yet. Like, I feel Ecclesiastes, and it's still one of my favorite books of the Bible. I love it. But I had a problem. I was locked. I didn't have the key. And then I found my way to the Gospel of John. And John 10.10, it was like the car hit the wall, flew through the windshield. Jesus says, I have come that you might have life to the full. And all I could think of was, if that's Jesus, I don't know him. Because I don't have that. And so whatever Jesus I've been chasing down is not this one. And so now I have the lock over here, and I have the key over here. And so all of life just became about saying, like, well, how do I put this key in this lock and take this meaningful life that Jesus promises and open up the chained-up, locked life that I'm living? And so for me, like, I didn't go to Bible college or anything because I wanted to be a pastor. I just wanted to, like, figure out how this connected with this. (laughs) And so seriously, like, fast forward, like, 23 years later, The greatest joy that I have as a pastor is just going to you guys every morning, just going like, look, look, look what I found this week. Look at this. Isn't he amazing? That's all it is, which is actually a really refreshing place to be, I think. And that's my greatest joy, especially as a teaching pastor who just gets to do this and go, look, 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 look. We are hardwired for satisfaction. That's why I bother to say all of this. And God loves you too much to let you be satisfied in anything other than him. So where do we go now? I think a lot of people, myself included, get hung up in one word, regret. We look over our shoulder and we're still stuck back there. What is regret? Quick definition, if you're writing this down, this might be helpful for you, I don't know. Regret, sacrificing today's joy on the altar of yesterday's failures. Sacrificing today's joy on the altar of yesterday's failures. Everybody's got failures. I've got mine, and they're not pretty, and you've got yours, and they're probably not much better. But God's word says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. The reason the rearview mirror is smaller than the windshield is because it's dangerous to drive looking at what you've left behind. If you are in Christ, you're new. Stop looking back there and stop living back there. Let God be good to you. Remember, Paul writes this to Christians. Christians, who are Christians? Saved people with sketchy pasts. Jesus people who have some not-so-Jesus stories back there. Forgiven people who are still figuring out how to live out their forgiveness. Accepted people who are trying to live out their acceptance. Clinging to regret, 
says, I would rather wear what I've put off than what Jesus wants to give me. Clinging to regret says, I am more interested in what I've not done than what Jesus has done. And so my word is, let God be good to you. Let him free you from that regret. And that is so way easier said than done. I know it. Why is it so hard? Here's the thing. At least this is true for me as I work through my own garbage. Most of us struggle with regret because we're afraid to join God in his forgetfulness of that thing back there, whatever your thing is. Because there's security in that thing. It takes faith to let God redefine who I am. And I know, like in my head, he's already forgiven and forgotten it, but as long as I am still living in regret, please follow me on this, as long as I'm still obsessed with regret, I am still the main character in my own story. My failing, my shortcoming, my mistakes, my screw-ups, my rebellion, and the enemy is happy with that. Because as long as I'm focusing on my work, guess whose work I'm not focused on? Jesus's. <laughs> but when I choose to agree with Jesus that I should bury the old story, when I let Jesus renew me, putting on his righteousness, the whole story changes. Christians are the only people who are not the main character in their own story. Sure, our stories may start with I, but they always include a but God moment. <laughs> So here's where we're going to go. We're going to do something different as we wrap up today. Band, you guys can come on out. We're going to take some moments just to reflect and to respond. A lot of times, I know how our services go and how our worship gatherings go here on Sunday mornings. We move right from all of that right into a worship song, and then we're thinking about, where did I put my car keys and my cell phone, and I got to get on to the next thing. So what we're going to do is we're going to create like five minutes here just for reflective prayer. And so there's going to be some soft music playing behind me. We're going to stand and sing in a few moments. But before we get there, I've got some questions that I want us to just think through, some things I want us to pray through, just to have some space in these moments, to not really do anything other than to pray and let the Holy Spirit speak. And so I'm going to guide us through these moments. I'm going to give you these questions first, and then we're going to come back, and I'm going to hit them one by one. Here they go. First, I want you to be honest enough to acknowledge who you are. You will never find the freedom that Christ offers if you don't see the change that you're in. Second prayer, I want you to be desperate enough for Jesus to heal you. This is not moral reformation. This is resurrection. Third prayer, to be serious enough about actually following him. Stop looking back there. Stop living back there. That's gone. Gone, gone, gone. It's gone. It's over. It's done. You are not that anymore. Praise God. And so let's take the first 30 seconds and just clear your heart. And then we're going to walk through each of these prayers one by one.
Lord, I ask that you would help us to be honest about who we are. In this moment, do not let us self-justify, Lord. We invite your spirit to speak into our lives. For some of us to see the rearview mirror, to some of us see that life that we are still living in, the things that we are still caught in. And so, Lord, speak in these moments. also acknowledge that we cannot save ourselves. For some of us in this room, some watching online, we've tried to fix it and we can't. And so, Lord, now we are desperate. And so we confess that you are the only one that can heal us. And so, Lord, we ask desperately, would you move? Break those chains, Lord, in this moment. Lord, we also know that there are some of us who've been playing the game. We've been pretending to be serious about you. So Lord, we invite your spirit to call us out. Wake us up. Having put off and invited your renewal, Lord, help us to really follow you take whatever elements of our lives that you want, Lord, we surrender them to you. Lord, we thank you for the light of your word. That it shines into the darkest corners of our lives, the corners that we would rather not acknowledge, we'd rather pretend they aren't there because they're hard to see. But Lord, we thank you that your light is not a cold light, it is a warm light. It invites us into a new life. Lord, we just say thank you for the gospel. Say thank you for your heart. You came not to condemn, but to save, to offer us a way out. Redefinition and resurrection. So Lord, we want to say thank you. And we want to confess that we love you. Say thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.